All that to say, it does need to happen. It's good for them, right? It keeps them clean. It protects their coat. It, it makes them more enjoyable to be licked by when they don't smell like a bunch of re- weird outside things. Like It's just a good process to get bathed. Just like for us humans, uh, it's good to do that at least once a week. I'm kidding. Probably more than that, depending on uh, your activity, but a lot. And so they'd come outside. The dogs at the time were Bo and Bella. Bo and Bella, two beautiful golden retrievers. They come outside. Now here's a picture of Bella after the bath, right? She looks like she's had the best time of her life. She's so excited. Let me show you how Bo would look at the end of the bath. (laughs) Exactly, right? It's just like he looked like he wanted to die right then and there. Like, I'm over. I hate this. And he would do everything possible to get out of the bath. Like they'd have to do it outside because they knew it was going to be in a crazy mess. And so there was water everywhere. I'm not a particular pet person. I, I would lean dog, but I'm not like a pet guy. And so I would kind of just stand there watching and the thing would shake. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I was soaking wet by the end of some of these baths that we would partake in uh, with the dog. And so it's just funny to me because just like a human bathing for a dog is a good thing, yet they tried to escape it with every single fiber of their being. Now, Bella was weird and loved the process, but Bo hated the process. And it was a long process, right? Even trying to to groom him would take 30, 40 minutes. I mean, just to keep him locked in one place and be able to do that. And I think it's not necessarily just a dog problem that we try to escape things that are good for us, right? We all have areas in our life that we try to escape things that probably are for our benefit, now, maybe it's exercise, or maybe it's certain eating habits, or maybe it's relational habits, or, or patterns, or, or disciplines, or being a part of a community group or a discipleship group, things that you know. It's like, yeah, I know that's good for me. I just, I just want to escape it. I don't really want to engage that. And our lives are exactly the same, even when it comes to pain and brokenness in our lives or injustice in our world. We often tend to escape those things, to escape the brokenness rather than engage it. And this comes true on so many different levels, right? If you've had a, a rebellious son or daughter and they've walked away from how you raise them or the, or the faith that you hope would be instilled in them at a young age, just never really happened and they walk away. And so instead of engaging that child, you just escape. Maybe you don't talk. Maybe when you do talk, it's shallow, it's light, it's not really meaningful. Maybe you've had a relative who's come out of the closet as gay and instead of like continuing to engage with them and continuing to share the hope of Jesus, you're just like, I'm just going to escape this. I, I don't know what to do. I'm awkward. It feels weird. And, and the brokenness that's right in front of you feels like you just can't really engage it. I, I face this almost every time I go downtown, right? There's a homeless person who walks up to me and I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do. Should I give you money? If I do, where are you going to spend it? If I don't, I feel guilty and I feel shameful. And, and, and so sometimes I do one or sometimes I do the other. And I just don't want to engage the brokenness. I'd rather escape it. Like if there's a way to walk through that homeless person, I would do it. Like I just, I would rather escape those things. And even when it comes to our own sin, our own brokenness, let's not talk about everyone else, but for us, uh, there's such a tendency in all of us to escape that, rather to engage it, to, to repent and to turn from sin and to confess that and to get it out in the light so that Jesus can heal it and make us whole again. It's like, I just, I'd rather escape. And in my mind, I'm driven by fear or worry, or I get angry, I get confused, maybe I get stressed because my life just feels so out of whack because there's so much brokenness and yet I don't even know where to start. Why are we that way? Why are we often tempted to, instead of engage brokenness in our lives, 
whether it's in our lives or in the people around us, rather than escape it. What is it about human nature that just seems to run the opposite direction? Fight or flight, we often flight. Like we don't want to engage it. I'd rather be passive aggressive or I'm not confrontational. I don't know how to say the truth in love and I don't know how to call sin what it is. Like we just rather escape than engage. And there's stories all throughout the scriptures. I mean, so far we've looked at Abraham and Moses last week. Brad talked about the fact that just because you're not enough doesn't mean God can't use you because it's true. You're not enough. You're inadequate. And yet Moses found himself being used by God in one of the most miraculous ways in our entire scriptures. And today I want to look at a character that many of you, if you've been around the Bible or church, are familiar with. It's King David, a man after God's own heart, a person that we kind of lift up and exalt as a, as a shining example of someone who faced adversity and yet stayed engaged, but his life wasn't maybe as perfect as you thought. Maybe you've read snippets here and there of David's story, but I want to take you to the very end, the kind of final chapters, if you will, of David's story and see how that inner story, inner, the story itself, I should say, intersects with our story. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 13, if you've got a Bible or something to search with or something to take notes with, I want you to catch this because you may miss it and maybe you've never even read this part of his story before. 2 Samuel 15, 13 says this. We're kind of jumping in in the middle of a story. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Absalom was David's son. Verse 14. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee. We must escape. We must get out of here. Or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. This guy was a king and he's escaping a broken situation. We'll get to why that is in just a minute. I want you to skip ahead. If you've got your Bibles and you're tracking with me, go to verse 30, 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. We kind of jump in. So he has this conversation with his men, the warriors, and saying, we're gonna get out of town. Verse 30, but David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. That's a kind of peculiar detail in the story, but the weeping and covering of heads is a sign of turmoil, of bitterness, of brokenness, of trouble, of, of kind of a, a weird feeling. I mean, the bitter feeling in a spirit. And that's kind of what David is experiencing. His son and we'll kind of get to why, but his son is conspiring against him, wanting to take him out, and, and David was God's chosen one. And rather than engage that broken situation, David escapes. Mount of Olives was this famous area outside of Jerusalem in a small uh, kind of part of the region called the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley would kind of be an escape route. If you're trying to get out of Jerusalem, the city of David, you're going through the Kidron Valley, up past the Mount of Olives, and getting out of town. You are escaping and probably even like my Bible, your Bible at the, at the top of verse 13 has a little subheading. Do you see it? David flees, David escapes, David runs, depending on your translation. And this isn't the first time that David escaped. And just like us, David had a tendency when there was brokenness or pain or suffering or, or sin to run the opposite direction, to not engage it, to not confront it, and to not make it right. And the very first instance that is most popular uh, among historians, among theologians, and even among people in the church would be sins with David and Bathsheba. 
The whole thing, if you've been around church, again, we talked about it even last summer, that David sees a woman outside of the temple course that he decides he wants. And this is a guy who's a woman who's married to Uriah, who's one of David's kind of leaders in the military. And David decides, you know what, forget all that, forget the relationship, I'm going to take what I want. And through a long series of events, invites Bathsheba into his courts and sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, has an affair, and she's powerless. She's taken advantage of. And David exploits her for sex. What I think is so interesting about that is said, rather at that point, and we've all had it, right? You've got a point where you can turn back, say, God, I've really kind of royally messed this up. I've screwed up. I need to go back. Rather than do that, David decides, I can figure this out. I can escape this, and nobody will know. So he hatches a plan. You're familiar with it if you know 2 Samuel 11. He decides, I'm going to send Uriah to the front lines where everyone's getting slaughtered, and then he won't even know. And so he sends him out, kills Uriah. And so he's not just committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and sexually exploited her. He's also then sent her husband to her death, to his death. I think it's incredible, just kind of snippet into his life and the state of his heart. Rather than engage that brokenness, and, and turn it back to God to reconcile, he escapes. His own kind of metaphorical Mount of Olives. He gets out of there. You skip ahead two chapters later. David has a son, half-son named Amon, has a daughter named Tamar. Amon, because he's warped and twisted and messed up, decides, I want to sleep with my sister, Tamar. Now, if your kids have that kind of interaction, something is clearly broken, right? There's some, some very deep brokenness, some woundedness going on in this family. And David continues to escape. So rather than say, hey, I don't think that's a good idea, buddy. Like, that seems pretty messed up. And that's not how God intended you to live out your sexuality. It's certainly not how the royal family should behave. And yet Amon does it anyway. He gets some of David's leaders and, and co coaxes Tamar into his room, ends up sleeping with her. It's like this incestuous relationship just kind of is there in, in the courts. And then you keep going in the story and David does nothing. There's no justice. He's angry, the scriptures say, but that's where, it's, that's where it ends. I'm mad. And sure, you would be mad as a dad, but he doesn't do anything. Doesn't punish Amon. He doesn't condemn this act of evil and, and violence. He, he doesn't do anything. He just escapes. And so Absalom, who we just read about in 2 Samuel 15, decides, I can do this better than dad. Dad's not going to do anything. Well, I think I'm going to just kill my brother. That's the, the, the logical conclusion uh, Absalom comes to, decides I'm going to take out Amon. And so Absalom hatches a plan, gets David's officials together and decides we're going to kill this, my brother. Absalom flees the city. He escapes just like his dad has done in, in painful, broken times. And Amon is killed. You fast forward to 2 Samuel 15, what we read, Absalom says, you know what? I think I can do this whole king thing better than my dad anyway. Guys, we should just, you should follow me. Like Absalom, I'm strong, I'm young, I've got a lot of good ideas, I know how to swiftly handle justice, I'm gonna be king now. And so they all start to conspire against, and that's where we picked up the story in David 13. What does David do upon that news? He escapes, he flees. Rather than engage the brokenness, David runs for his life, climbs up the Mount of Olives, a popular escape route, and gets out of there. Here's where this story starts to really click. It's not till centuries later that something would happen that would help us understand how do we move from escaping the brokenness in our life to engaging it. And it's in the same place. It's on the Mount of Olives. 
And I want to look at that passage today. And so if you've got your Bibles out, I'm going to have you skip ahead to Matthew 26. Skip ahead into the gospel story. Towards the end, Jesus is on the road to the crucifixion. He's on the way to the cross. And in Matthew 26, verse 30, look at what we read. When the disciples had sung a hymn, they went out to the where? Mount of Olives. In their minds, Jesus is headed for the cross and they see him, oh, we're going to the Mount of Olives. We're probably going to escape. Like we're going to get out of this suffering. We're going to escape this brokenness. Jesus, you don't have to die. Do the same thing David did. Just run for your life. We'll go with you. So they go out of Jerusalem. They head towards the Kidron Valley and they start climbing the Mount of Olives. They start to get out of town. But something different happens in this encounter. Jesus does something different than King David did in the Mount of Olives. You read it in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Gethsemane is kind of cultivated garden that was within the Mount of Olives. Verse 37, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Remember how David walked up the same mountain? Sorrowful, troubled, weeping, covering his face with shame. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watching me. Let me just pause for a minute. Have you ever felt that overwhelmed? You ever felt like I just can't go on? I don't have answers. Everything I did try didn't work. This relationship is still broken. My finances are still out of whack. My relationship with God still, feel, still feels distant and, and fractured. I don't, I don't know how to make this right. You just feel overwhelmed. Jesus is feeling that depth of trouble, that depth of our brokenness. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. <laughs> Couldn't you men keep watching me for one hour? Fair question, right? Guys, I'm about to head to the cross. I've led you through this journey of suffering. We're here in prayer and you all fall asleep. Like that's not the ideal disciple behavior. Verse 41, he asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. David's story again and again, if it's anything, his spirit was willing. He was a man after God's own heart, but his flesh was weak got the best of him. He was non-confrontational. He didn't engage the brokenness when it happened. When his son wanted to take advantage of his daughter, he was hands-off. When he saw someone else's wife that he wanted, he was hands-on. Like he was just continually disengaged from what God's will was. And here's what I love. In verse 42, is, as Jesus goes away for a second time, he leaves the company of his men. He goes into prayer. He's communicating with the Father. He's saying, God, if, this, if there isn't a way out, if I can't escape this, may your will be done. Surrendering his agenda, his desires, even up to the point of death. And that's true throughout the scripture story. There's moments again and again like that. See, where we tend to escape, Jesus engages. Jesus steps in. Jesus doesn't leave the brokenness that's out there and say, I don't know if I can do anything about that. He steps in, he engages. And, and friends, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, that's your personal story as well, that you were broken. You were far from God. 
Scripture says that before we accept Christ and surrender to him, we are in rebellion against our Father. We're stepping away from what he wants for us. And yet, at the point of salvation, Jesus will step into your brokenness. He'll make you whole, make you new. Not just kind of fix some problems you have. Not kind of help you manage the sin in your life. No, make you a literal new person. That's my story. And if you follow Jesus, this is your story. Where we tend to escape and run the other direction, Jesus engages. There's two ways to climb the Mount of Olives in the scripture. David's way or Jesus's way. And the hope for us is that we can climb it Jesus's way. I sat with a friend a couple weeks ago who was recently diagnosed with leukemia, a guy who attends our church, who serves here at Center. I was sitting with him, and we just had about an hour-long conversation. Some of it was really profound and deep, and others was about like the hospital food. Like There was a whole spectrum of what we were talking about. But I drove away, and here's what I thought about. Imagine with me if you had cancer. Maybe you've had cancer and you don't have to imagine it, but imagine if you have not. All of us know someone touched by cancer. We know how horrible this disease is, but imagine you have cancer and there's two options for doctors. There's one doctor on this hand that uh, is really funny. He's very nice. He's good looking. He's got candy in his office. Like he's going he's gonna to make you feel good about the pain you have and he's going to send you home with some pain meds and that's pretty much it. Doctor number one. Doctor number two, on the other hand, is maybe not as polished and nice. Maybe he's a little rough around the edges, but he's direct, and he's got like a 99% success rate, but it's going to be painful. He's going to have to go in and do some invasive surgery. This is not outpatient. This is like a big deal, and it's going to be a long road of recovery. Maybe there's chemo involved. Maybe there's additional surgeries. There's a ton of side effects, but eventually the cancer will be gone. He'll be able to remove all the cancer. Which doctor would you choose? The one who helps you escape from the pain and brokenness or the one who can actually do something about it? This is the exact story of David and Jesus. David escaped. He took the easy way out and Jesus engages. He goes deep. He's in prayer. He's in surrender to the Father. He steps into the brokenness, not his own. He's sinless, perfect, righteous, holy, he steps into our brokenness and carries on him the weight of our own sin and our fallenness. And this is the hope today. So the question is, where or what are you escaping right now? What is the area of your life that maybe you're tempted? You've got a crossroads. You could be David. You can escape. You can keep doing the things that you think will bring fulfillment and wholeness and satisfaction and maybe even redemption to the brokenness in your life. Or you can take the Jesus route, climb the Mount of Olives the way he does and engage the Father. Say, God, I don't know how this is gonna go. I think it's gonna be painful. It may get darker before the dawn, but I'm choosing your way. This is the hope of the gospel. This is why we follow who we do. And maybe for you, that's just too macro. It's too hard to, to understand and process. And you need to wrestle with that question this week. But for many of us, it starts with this one simple act. One simple thing is to identify the symptom. If you're taking notes, write that down so you can process that throughout this week. Identify the symptom. Uh, I, I talk to people often as a pastor. I interact with a lot of different people uh, inside our church, outside our church, and talk about spiritual things. As soon as they figure out you're a pastor, that's what they want to talk about. And so I've talked about this with many people and even some of you, is that maybe there's an outside behavior. Maybe there's some, a pattern or a bad habit or even an addiction 
Maybe there's something you watch on the computer you know you shouldn't watch. Maybe there's something you do with your money you know is not God-honoring with your money. Maybe it's the way you talk to a spouse or to a child you know is not honoring. And those are the symptoms. Identify those. But beneath those are what we're talking about is the real brokenness. If I wrestle with an addiction to pornography, I don't have a problem with pornography. I have a problem with intimacy. If I'm wrestling with being quick and, and, and short with my kids or with my spouse, my problem is not that I have a short fuse. My problem is that below the surface, I have some relational brokenness. I've got anger, maybe even hatred, maybe bitterness and resentment towards, towards God himself. If you go to the mall and you spend as soon as something goes wrong in your life, you decide, I'm really jacked up right now. I need to get a new phone, or I need to get a new car, or I need to, to get some new clothes. And you try to cover it up. Now, the financial part is certainly a symptom, but below that is maybe a fundamental belief that God won't provide for you, that the security you find in him just isn't enough. And maybe it's social media as a symptom. Maybe it's your finances that's a symptom. Maybe it's a, a short fuse or, or, or quick temper, or maybe it's a lot of other things. But those symptoms only point to a deeper brokenness. And you can choose the David way. And I've had friends who have chosen the David way. Are they still in those same cycles of brokenness and sin? Unfortunately, yes. They never found a way out. They chose doctor number one. But there's others of you. And there's other friends that I have who've chosen route two of confession, of repentance, of brokenness, of deep sorrow about the sin and brokenness in their life or in the lives around them, and God healed them and made them whole. It wasn't quick, it wasn't overnight, it took a lot of time, but they became a new person, and Jesus did that work in them. So identify the symptom, find out what those are, and then point to Jesus as the ultimate solution. Don't just escape those things, engage them. Trust that God's confidence, that God's love will give you confidence. Trust that when God says his Holy Spirit will be with you, it actually will be with you. Believe that God's presence and power actually can change the things in your life. Doctor number one is nice and there's candy there, but there's not gonna be the removal of, of cancer is what you really need. Think of sin as that cancer. You need someone who can go in with tools and, and, and make stuff right. There's going to be scars. There's going to take time for healing. You're going to be in the bed for a little bit, but you're going to be whole. And that's ultimately what David's story points to and what Jesus fulfills. See, David is most familiar for being kind of the, the first in the line of royalty in which Jesus would emerge. The prophecy would, would state that over and over again. The King David is going to, going to be the seed in which Jesus, the true king of this world, emerges. And Jesus does emerge as the king. And where David failed, Jesus succeeds. Where David escaped, Jesus engages. Where you want to escape, you probably need to engage. And that's the hope of the gospel. And if, if we don't do this, it's not like you're going to experience the side effects right now. Now you may. There's probably more symptoms to come. You may become cynical. You may become hopeless. You may despair. You may say, God is not good. God is not faithful. I shouldn't follow him. He doesn't deserve my allegiance because there's so much brokenness in my life. But the gospel is hope that there is healing on the other side of surgery, that there is wholeness on the other side of brokenness. This is ultimately the gospel story. This is us. This is our story. This is who we are. And this is the hope that we have. I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes for a minute as we close. I want to bring us into a time of prayer. 
and silence before God. And maybe this feels a little awkward or uncomfortable. Maybe you just are able right away to identify those symptoms. Maybe you see them all over. It's like, man, I would love to be free of those. I would love to have some wholeness. I would love to be able to break the cycle of brokenness in my life or even in those that I love around me. I want to lead us together in a prayer before we respond in worship. Maybe you've prayed this prayer before. Maybe you never have. And maybe for you, this is the very first time you'll do it. Maybe for you, it's been a long time since you've done it. I want to lead us in a prayer called the Believer's Prayer, which you simply kind of state what may be going on in your own heart, in your own life. And the prayer does not save you. The prayer is not going to make all your problems go away, but the prayer is a first step. Much like baptism, if you've been saved, baptism is your first step. Much like if you've grown in Christ and you've taken steps of maturity, joining a group is your next step. Whatever those things are, I wanna lead us in this prayer. We're gonna all say it out loud together. No one needs to be embarrassed. No one needs to stand up and dance around. Like just, this is between you and God right now. And as a community, we wanna pray this together. So would you repeat after me, Jesus. I'm broken about my sin. I need you to heal me. I recognize that I am powerless to save myself. And I'm inviting you in today. God, would you make me a new person? Would you free me from the brokenness in my life? help me to be whole. I give my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I pray right now for the person that today, that was their step, was surrendering their life to you. Maybe they've never done that before. And today is the start of something brand new in them. God, I pray for the person that today Maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, that was a reality for them. But they've drifted away. They're apathetic. If they were honest, they're kind of bored by their faith right now. God, I pray that these simple words that we've prayed together would just be a reminder of how faithful, how gracious, how merciful you are. God, we confess it as a church. We need you. Some of us need deep heart surgery done in our lives. And we ask you to step in as the great physician, as a good doctor, as as the comforter, as our healer, and make us whole. Help us to engage rather than escape. We want to see you move. We pray it all in Jesus' strong and his powerful name. Amen.